key in, uh, in the outperformance is understanding where you are uh, in these sectors, as an example. And I think that even for traders, it's important to know where whatever it is you're trading is in its long-term trend. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I have Louise Yamada on the podcast. She is the former Managing Director of Technical Research for Smith Barney. She has made a lot of great calls over the years, and I'm happy to have her on the podcast because today she gives a little bit of behind the scenes about what she likes to look at to identify change early and how she views technical analysis as being a valuable tool in the investment process. I hope you enjoy this podcast. So uh, Louise Yamada, you are kind of an icon of a technician. And I remember one time I was sitting next to you. You probably don't remember this. Uh, this was prior to interest rates going up. And you came and you kind of leaned over to me and you said, interest rates are bottoming right now and they're about to go up. And you were right on the money. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that. Shame on me. <laughs> uh, that was that was great. Uh, that was before the pandemic. So uh, times have changed a lot since then. Exactly. And, um, I, you know, I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about your background in terms of how you got into technical analysis and, uh, you know, kind of a. You are one of the early adopters, I think, in technical analysis on Wall Street. Can you give me a little bit of kind of background on how you even got into this field? Um, I'm not sure I'm an early adopter. I ended up in one of Alan's classes, but it, it occurred because um, I, I was a nursery school teacher. I have my master's in early childhood psychology and education. And I always joke that held me in very good stead on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, you got to you got to you got to uh, deal with a bunch of uh, big children. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you got it. Um, but I also had I was a single parent at the time and no money, so I started reading and. Uh, it, selling things and putting them in the market and at one point I asked my broker how do you know when to sell and he sent me some technical analysis papers and so I went down to the Finance Institute took the first class of course was with Ralph Acampora and he was such a hoot that I, I went on to the advanced class which Alan Shaw taught in his chart room which was really impressive um, with all, every day, everything was plotted by hand on the wall. And in the middle of the class, he asked if anybody uh, would like a job. And I was teaching nursery school at the time. And I said, sure. I said, I'd be delighted. So make a long story short, that's where I ended up. And learned under Alan's example uh, for 25 years. It was, it was really wonderful. He was... Uh, an amazing practitioner of technical analysis, really. Wow. So, so when you got started, did you feel a little bit like unsure Alice about in the Wonderland? field? Alice yeah. in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like how many women were were in the oh, team at the time? Well, I was the only one uh, actually on the uh, analysis team. 
that we had a gal that plotted all the New York Stock Exchange stocks point and figure every day, and that's all she did. She got the runoff from the computer and plotted by hand all the one-point reversals for the New York Stock Exchange stocks, um, just like Helene Meister still does. But we lost, uh, we lost eventually the uh, service that provided us with that, with that run. Um, just about the time that I retired out of Smith Barney in 2005. So it was more and more difficult to have somebody do all the New York Stock Exchange stocks by hand. So we've come a long way uh, since you know doing everything by hand. How has technology been like just adapting to it in your career? How, how has that been, you know, the phases for you and how you do things? Well, it was very nice to have it all, you know, done mechanically. We had somebody, Jonathan Lynn, who uh, did all our programs and put together what we needed to do our daily printouts. But we still plotted it on the walls um, as long as I was at Smith Barney. I think I did it for 15 years. And then Alan said, look, you've got to hand it off to someone else. But, you know, there's something very tangible about putting the data on the wall. You really can feel what might be coming next. Um, and because you know what the numbers are, you log them in the book by hand and you know what's coming up 10 days you know, before and which way the data might move. So that was, uh, that was hard to give up, but eventually it was fine because I started doing more research. So do you, what year did you actually start uh, in the technical field? 1980-81. Okay, so we were, uh, let's see, we had just come out of the 70s. The markets were very, very rocky at that point. What was your, were you thinking, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Actually, it was a good learning experience. And of course, Alan was right on target and called the bottom in 82. And uh, that was very exciting. And um, no, it was, it, it was a terrific run. The important thing about technical analysis that people need to realize is it's really a study of supply and demand. It's not just points on a paper. Uh, you're looking at the supply and demand for the stock in the marketplace. And that is what creates the patterns that we look at as technical analysts. And from that create momentum and whatever other indicators one wants to watch. You know, I, the one question I always ask people that have been doing a long time is like, if, once you've gone through and you've studied all these things, you know, at some point you have to say these set of things really are reliable for how I do my work. So for you, what, what would you say are those kind of primary toolkits that, that work the best for your type of work? There's an art to it as much as a science, I think, is what Alan always used to say. Uh, so that is probably how different technicians can come up with different, uh, different profiles. But I think the, uh, the most important thing is to simply uh, recognize changes that are taking place. I think relative strength is critical. We can talk about that as a, as a really helpful uh, tool. Um, the MACD and momentum, I use daily, weekly, monthly, very important. And um, 
Well, relative strength. A lot of people use the stochastic, but I think it runs pretty much in tune with the MACD um, and the RSI. They're rather similar indicators. Should be getting signals that are um, corresponding with all of them. Have you did did you spend most of your time, or do you spend most of your time in the stock world, or do you tend to look at things more globally, like? across asset classes like currencies and commodities and, and well we followed all of it and certainly when we were independent we followed all of it we had a section for um you know commodities isolated commodities the, the main ones silver gold platinum palladium uh i don't think we followed and copper um and then we did of course natural gas and specifically oil which was a, a really big a big commodity for us we saw in the relative strength and I, I i'd like to focus on relative strength because i think sure. that you hear so often about having a diversified portfolio and one of the things that um comes to mind in a diversified portfolio is that if you have, have underperforming stocks as well as outperforming stocks your underperforming stocks are going to offset the outperforming stocks what we like to do is concentrate the investment process in those sectors and stocks that are outperforming. Remember, you don't go into the market so that you can underperform. That's just, <laughs> you wanna outperform. So key in, uh, in the outperformance is understanding where you are uh, in these sectors, as an example. And I think that even for traders, it's important to know where whatever it is you're trading is in its long-term trend. So as an example, in 2006-7, we started to see an enormous deterioration in the monthly, this is your long-term, relative strength for the financials. Um, and I remember at the time, the media was saying, oh, but we've had financials before, 1998, 1990. And you look at the chart and you say, yes, but this is a very tiny relative strength divergence. So we're looking for divergences, which means that the price does one thing and the relative strength or the indicator does another. And in this case, the financial price continued to go up, but the relative strength was not confirming. And eventually, we got a breakdown in 2007 of the relative strength for the financials on a monthly basis through a six-year support. That is not a minor indication. That's mm. telling you that something structural is happening to financials. And we got our clients out in about 2007 as that relative strength broke down. And we've had, you know, to this day, feedback about how it saved, you know, the portfolios. Um, the, a similar event occurred in energy in 2014. The monthly relative strength broke down under a, it wasn't a six-year support, I would say it was probably a three or four-year support, but nevertheless, we saw something that was telling us at that point in time that we wanted to move to the sidelines in terms of energy. Uh, so I think that the relative strength is a very important qualifier. Um, 
And I mean, you can use it short term, daily, whatever, but basically you want to be sure that your sector, your stocks are in a rising trend. Of course, your moving averages help you with that as long as they're going up. It's similar to a trend line suggesting that the trend continues to be up. You'll always have pullbacks, but the pullbacks have to hold at higher levels. In other words, you're talking about supply and demand in these trends. And as long as the demand is in place, you should put in a higher low. A higher low in the course of an uptrend is representative of aggressive demand for the stock or the commodity or whatever it is you're, you're looking at. Uh, so that is really how we have tried to stay on the right side of, of the investment process. If you can avoid the most underperforming sectors, you're doing well in your diversification. If you're going to diversify, at least get out of the ones that are really in the downturn. Uh, Louise, I can't tell you how refreshing what you're saying is to my ears, because in today's world, everybody is saying, uh, you know, index, own everything, you can't beat the market, uh, you, know, di you know, diversify, extreme diversification, uh, and then you wind up, you know, if you just take an equally weighted uh, sector, you know, type of universe of stocks, and then you try to find the best ones within each sector, but you but you put the constraint on yourself that I've got to have exposure to every sector. It's very hard to outperform. You have to eliminate things out of your portfolio to outperform. And it's 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 very difficult. Now, in this environment right now, I have a question for you about the environment right now because I think it ties into what you're talking about. One thing we know for sure, this is not your parents' economy. I want to make available to you a copy of my book, The Financial Freedom Blueprint. The very first chapter you can download for free, and in that chapter you'll learn on ways to stay ahead of the herd, how to invest in this crazy environment, and how to make sure your financial plans are on track. So go to pathtorealwealth.com and download your free copy today. If, if we are in a situation, and I'm going to make a big assumption here, but if we are in a situation that with this bear continues, let's just say it does, um, how are we going to, let's say we went into an environment like the 70s where we had big gyrations maybe, how does somebody outperform if you just own everything? I mean, and I know, I know this is it's a kind of a leading question, but that's, a, that's kind of a problem that I see right now is that you, there's so many indicators out there that are so many macro indications that we could be in a very difficult market. You may disagree with that. No. But if that's the case, I don't understand how you could even outperform without using tools like you're talking about. Well, it doesn't hurt to sit on the sidelines. Uh, we always used to say we'd rather be out of the market wishing we were in than in the market wishing we were out. Uh, <laughs> so I have to say that, you know, come January, February, I was easing out. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, you can't really advise other people to do that because you could be wrong and they may not be as happy sitting on the sidelines wishing they were in. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, I think there definitely is a time, and I think we're probably in one now, uh, where there is enough complication, confusion, whatever you want to call it, economically, in every way, and I, you know, worry about things like shortages of water and food going forward that's putting us in a completely different environment than we have ever 
ever in our lifetimes, our grandparents' lifetimes that we've ever seen. And um, sometimes people think I'm crazy, but what I wrote about in the 90s when I published the pieces that comprised a portion of Market Magic, which was the book, and that was about the water shortages, and everybody thought I was nuts. Well, it's taken 30 years for the rest of the people to realize that we do have a problem, especially with the Mississippi currently not going from Memphis to New Orleans. Um, that's just an aside, but there is um, there is a lot of turbulence in the markets today. Certainly geopolitically, there are problems that I think will keep the market on its toes, volatile, um, moving from one sector to another, which we've seen uh, over the past month, the whole year, where certain portions of the market underperform for a minute and then they turn up and vice versa. So it, it has not been an easy negotiating environment. One of the biggest things that I've noticed talking to you is that you really do have a long-term focus. Yes, but not without using, you know, trading in between. But yes, I think the long-term focus is important, as I said, even for traders to understand yeah. where they are in the uh, long-term profile. I think one of the things that may not be recognized today, and I don't know if I can show you a picture, but basically what I wanted to discuss, which I think is a major trend that is finally reversing, is the interest rate trend. Now, we had... Alan was absolutely fabulous in identifying in 1985 the reversal of rising interest rates to a major trend of falling interest rates. And I remember that was before a lot of the machines were available to do this, but we had the whole handout on tables. All the tables in our chart rooms were laid out, and we had to put the date on every single piece of paper. Uh, by hand on the the tapes from the typewriter. Um, and I kept saying, Alan, don't delay. You got to get this out. He got it out two days before the major um, interest rate drop, which went from maybe 10% down to, I'm looking at the chart today, but it's a log chart, down to eight, whatever. But that was an amazing call. And the prior trend had run from 1946 to 1981. So in doing some of my long-term studies, I went back and looked at the interest rates and most of the, all of the reversals from rising rates to falling rates. If I show you this chart, you would be able to see that all the shifts from rising rates to falling rates, I'm doing it backwards here. Um, were very sharp, inverted Vs. Uh, and the trends from falling rates to rising rates were more saucer-like, taking a longer term, saucer-like affairs, two to 14 years, whatever. So we've been watching this trend uh, for, that started in 1981 and went, as we know, almost to zero. But we had anticipated a six to eight year saucer bottom. And we almost had it, and then the crisis hit, and rates went all the way down to nothing. Well, now they're coming back, and uh, they've reversed that drop to nothing. I doubt we're going to see that happen again. 
Um, so one of the things that Alan always used to do, we say, put your put your finger over it, you know, if you if that that spike down. And if you do that, you do see that we have a six now to eight to ten year saucer bottom. And the 40 year, the 40 year trend, it didn't end at 36, so it's now the longest interest rate trend we've had in history. Um, that that long term downtrend has been broken. So we do believe that we are initiating a new trend of structurally rising rates. And if you think about the young people coming into the industry over the past 40 years, they have never experienced a rising interest rate environment. One of the problems is we don't learn from our grandparents' generation, the alternate cycle. Um, and that would have been from 1946 to 81. And I suggest that traders that are interested in the interest rate History should go back and examine that period because that's what we're starting, in my humble opinion, technically. Yeah, absolutely. That that was, you, and you've been looking at that for a while. I think you've been a couple of years ago. That's what you were whispering to me <laughs> in between. <laughs> exactly, but really that spike down. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it takes a while for these things. I'm actually going to pull up a chart that I wanted to get your oh, opinion good. on. It's, it's, it's along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, and it has to do with this inflation. All right. So I don't know if you could see this. I'm going to put it on full. So um, what this is a really long-term chart that goes back. Uh, let's see. This goes back to the 50s. Um, maybe didn't go back as long as yours did, but there's two, two lines on here. One is the effective federal funds rate. That's the blue line. And then the, uh, U S inflation rate line, which is the, uh, orange line. And then these shaded areas here are the recessions. And if you come over here during the Obama administration, you see the federal funds rate was just Look how low that was kept relative to inflation for so long. How easy our money was. And then we have this spike up in the inflation rate, right? Uh, and we're so far behind the inflation rate in terms of how much normally you need to see the Fed tighten. And I was wondering, you know, based on history, it's very clear that the Fed is still very loose. Do you think that that is going to potentially lead to, and I know you're not a fundamental, you're not, you know, not into fundamentals as much, but do you feel like the Fed has a lot of catching up to do and that this is going to affect the long end different than the short end? Or, you know, what is your, your from what you've been seeing, how does, how does the long versus the short end of the yield curve differ in your mind, if at all? I don't know that I can evaluate that. And it sort of makes me angry that everybody's always dumping on the Fed. I mean, they're trying so hard to be, you know, transparent and telling you what they're going to do and whether they're up behind or not. I mean, that it's a huge responsibility. I'm not so sure they're behind it. We had oil prices ratcheted up enormously quickly, which pushed inflation higher than they might have been able to predict. I mean, geopolitical issues are, are playing with the price of oil. So I'm not quite as quick to uh, discount the Fed. I think Greenspan overdid it. But beyond that, I think they've been trying hard. Mm. Yeah, so so basically, they've had to they've had to have more easy money to try to 
deal with undo what he did <laughs> yeah uh yeah to undo what now i'm i just uh well i was just i mean greenspan was feeding the punch bowl or whatever yes, yes um yeah but then we had the financial crisis the cdos and and the, and the bad ratings for that which caused the initial um financial crisis yeah and and so now we're we're in a, an environment where inflation is higher, uh, interest rates continue yeah. to seem to be. I mean, I was looking at the trend indicators that we follow, and and the currencies are are the foreign currencies are plummeting, and they continue to be on the on the low end of that uh, trend indication. Uh, and so my my I guess what I'm wondering is, based on the stock market work that you're doing. Do you feel like the stock market is still in a downtrend, will likely go f further down? Or do you feel, are you seeing any signs of bottoming right now? Well, we there have been a few positive divergences on a short-term basis, um, daily, weekly. The monthlies for all three markets, or all the major markets, are still on a sell, okay? So from the long-term perspective, I don't have any need to go in full, full, full force. Okay. If you want to play the short term potential for positive divergence rally, we've seen a little bit of it already, whether it continues or not is uh, yet to be seen. Mm -hmm. uh, it could, I mean, this is the season when everybody looks for the Christmas rally or whatever you want to call it. And then um, Jeff Hirsch's, um, sell in May and go away and you come in again the end of October. So that's on people's minds. That may be creating some purchasing power. We'll see. But do I trust it? Not at the moment. Mm. Not at the moment. I mean, I don't, it, we're never going to, technicians are never going to get you in at the exact low and never going to get you out at the exact top. But there should be enough warning signs. Um, in 2002, you had a development of a tiny head and shoulders, uh, reverse head and shoulders bottom, okay? Mm. And, um, you're never going to do it because you want to wait for confirmation. Got it. And something like the relative strength the breakdowns that we saw for financials and, and for the energy back in 20, 2014 um, are some of the early warning signs that allow you to move to the sidelines with those on underperforming areas and protect you from losing profits. Um, I think we're in a, in a difficult period. I have no need to rush in and we'll see. When those monthly indicators, monthly MACDs turn positive, everybody's gonna say, well, you were late because you waited for the, okay, <laughs> I'm late. But at least I have a, a confirmation that I'm comfortable with. Right. Yeah. Picking bottoms is difficult. And uh, right now, it seems like more and more people want to pick a bottom. And um, and the se the sentiment indicators look like they're overblown. There's a lot of bearishness out there. So more and more people feel like there's a, a, you know, a bounce due. You're hearing some people say, you know, Elliott wave, why is it that we should have a bounce? Um, but if you just... Think about, to me, if you just feel, if you've been through bear markets, I've been um, managing money for 27 years. I've been through a few of these ups and downs. 
it doesn't feel yeah. like a panic sell. It doesn't feel like a bottom to me. It feels like it, what it reminds me of the 1990, you know, after the dot com a blow up, we had about a 20, 25% correction and people were saying it was the bottom and then we went down another 15 or 20%. Another, it feels yeah. kind of like that to me. The other side of the coin is we had we have had in all those very speculative names, the arc type names, 70% declines and the arc chart itself has done a complete round trip. Complete. I mean, how, how far do you expect a stock to go if it's selling 500 times, you know, PE? Right, yeah. So the It doesn't make sense. And, and the other thing, too, is there's a relationship between the PEs and interest rates. So if you come back to normal, um, as interest rates go up, your PEs come down, and that presents risk to the price of the stock. That's very, that's very true. I was listening to... Uh, I forget which analyst I was listening to, but there was a discussion about the long-term valuation metrics. If you look at price to sales, uh, if you look at the CAPE ratio, if you look at the Buffett indicator, all three of those, which are fairly good indicators of you know, big macro valuation, overvaluation, undervaluation, those are all still at historical highs. Meaning, And I margin debt, which I don't, get to see too often, but that that's had a little unwinding, but that was at a historic rate. Um, and you have to question, I don't think we've ever seen quite as many speculators since Robin Hood opened that we had had in the past. Um, and many of them are young and don't really know what they're doing except sharing on Twitter or whatever it is they share on <laughs> to trade within the day and within the week and oh gosh you're so right i saw a statistic one on uh in the brokerage community one out of five accounts owned by millennials have been closed in the last year because of margin probably do you think i don't know if they're closing because of margin or they may just be closing because they're done because they were trading cryptos or they're you know they lost a lot of money and, oh, that's true. uh so yeah. and we saw that i remember you know, in the dot-com bubble, I mean, people were, I remember people coming to me saying they were going to quit their job and they were going to day trade and all that. You could do, you could throw a dart at anything. And then uh, yeah. and there was a lot of young people. It was, it just reminds me so much of that. And I know it's never the, exactly the same, um, but, but the value. You don't need, were, but you don't, yeah, huge. You don't need brains in a bull market. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Not at all. And you learn very quickly that, that, that doesn't, you know, Louise, I was actually, a, I, I don't know if you know, I, I have a CFA and I was a fundamental uh, analyst uh, uh -huh. you know, early in my career, uh, but I got my CMT uh, in 1989 or yeah, 89. Uh -huh. uh, Great. Uh, so, uh, but I, the dot-com bubble was kind of my turning to realizing that I need to have technical analysis in my toolkit. Right. Well, technical really, really helps at tops whether it's the top in the stock. I remember digital equipment, which is long gone, had this huge breakout and it was a false breakout and you ended up with a tremendous top and the stock went down, 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 down and disappeared. Um, so I would certainly say that if you need to see what the technicals are telling you so that you can recognize a top, whether it's a moving average flattening out from a rising trend, whether it's a a negative divergence in the MACD or in the relative strength 
as price goes to a new high, the indicator does not match the new high. You know that you have at least, if you're looking at it short term, you have at least a period of consolidation ahead of you. From a long-term perspective, you get a long-term sell signal, I'm out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is really important. So we're, what we're talking about is the basics of technical analysis. Right. And yeah. uh, I think we've gotten a little far, we're starting to get too far removed from some of the basics. Uh, as, as computing power has gotten uh, very easy, you know, we're doing a lot of things and it's been good to quantitatively to test things and all that. But some of the basics of trend and relative strength, you know, I, I think of it as, I, I, I use an acronym called TORC, trend, overbought, oversold, relative strength and quality patterns. I mean, like if you mm -hmm. look at those four things, you're probably gonna be, have it right. Um, and and one thing to remember about one of those, the overbought and the oversold, is that overbought's and oversolds can extend. It doesn't mean when something becomes overbought that you sell it. I mean, that that's evidence, uh, empirical evidence of buying power. So if something's overbought, again, perhaps from a longer-term perspective, um, you want to stay with it until it ceases to be overbought. And the same thing for oversold. You don't want to jump in the minute something gets oversold. That turns out to be successful for traders in a rising trend. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a choppy trend or a downtrend and something becomes oversold, it can stay oversold for an extended period of time. If you look at investors' intelligence, which was, has been oversold, went up, came out of it, and has back, gone back into it, um, that happened over a period of years in 2000, 2002. And you could have gotten caught in any, in any one of them. The other thing that I think is important to think about as to what the movement in price is telling you. If you start to see an extended flat or head and shoulders top or a V top or something of that sort, let's talk about it in terms of a flat topping process. In other words, the stock moves in from an uptrend into a trading range and then breaks below the support of that trading range. It really indicates that somebody out there, smarter than you or I, perceives something about that company that they want to accept less money to get out. And the opposite is true at bottoms. You see a saucer bottom or a rectangular bottom and the price moves above that level, it's an indication that somebody out there now perceives something good about this company uh, and is willing to pay up, pay more to own it. Uh, and I think if you think about that from a psychological perspective of what the, what the price is telling you, um, it's helpful. Yeah. Support and resistance is, is uh, and trends, just following trends of support and resistance is very helpful. And divergences, you know, I have to say, I have not been watching divergences as much as I used to. Uh, you know, talk to, I'm going to start watching them a little more. Yeah, I think they're incredibly important. And pull out that monthly chart. Uh, don't be afraid to pull out that monthly chart because most people are in this daily world. Uh, I was talking to Craig Johnson and he was, uh, focusing on the weekly chart. He's like, that's kind of where I like to be because that kind of works. Uh -huh. um, you know, and and you mentioned having multiple time frames. Can you yes. tell me a little bit about how you think about multiple time frames? Like how do you start 
how far do you, you know, how, what is your general process or workflow when you're going from monthly, weekly, daily? Well, I like to look at all of them. <clears throat> Obviously, let's say we're in a situation, which we are now, where all of the major indices are on long-term monthly MACD cell signals. Therefore, if you look at the weekly and the daily, what you might be made aware of in those shorter time perspectives is the opportunity for a trade, maybe, for a trade. Um, you get a positive divergence in the daily, you know, you may get a point or two. You get a positive divergence in the weekly, I agree with Craig, um, I like the weekly. Uh, it gives you a better sense that there might be some sustainability to what it's telling you if you get the positive divergence. And the MACD, you might get a little bit more out of the uh, out of the price advance. And the same thing at the tops. If you are in a positive monthly perspective from the, in other words, the monthly MACD is on a buy and you get a sell signal short term on a daily, it could be telling you that the price needs to consolidate. Maybe it's had a good run and people are taking, some people are taking a little profit um, and if you get a positive divergence or negative, I'm sorry, negative divergence in the weekly within an ongoing buy signal on the monthly, it could be telling you that there's some kind of corrective action coming into place within that long-term positive trend. So yeah, I like to use all of them. Yeah, very interesting. So when I was looking at my notes here, I mean, there's always a narrative out there the fundamental uh, narratives about, you know, what's happening, whether it be good or bad. And I think one of the things that technical analysis does is it helps us kind of cross check. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, when I was talking to Dave Keller, he mentioned that they had this, they always pulled up charts when the analysts were doing their stories, they'd do like a really fast pitch for a stock that they liked. And, uh, you know, you, when you come, you, you say you love a stock, but then the stock is rolling over, like, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, I think that's another big valuable thing. But I was going to ask you about a couple narratives that I'm hearing right now and then what you would say the charts if you had a chance to look at those charts, whether whether or not it's refuting or supporting that thesis. So the one the one thesis that you're hearing a lot of fundamental analysts say is that uh, the the dollar is going to, the dollar is overblown, it's gone up too much and it needs to come down uh, because of the trade uh, relationships. Are you seeing anything that says the dollar has topped? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. It could consolidate. It could go into a trading range. Um, but at the moment, it seems to be carrying out its safe haven reserve currency. I'm not sure how long that's going to last in terms of decades because um, we've got so many of our non-allies no longer buying our treasuries and at some point our debt is going to become problematic but at the moment you've got enough political unsettlement that people still perceive the u.s as a safe yeah that's that's really true because you can make a long-term case that that the dollar needs to come down uh, yeah. but it, you know when you're in an environment where it's just like uh you know risk off and the money comes back to the u.s you're going to have the dollar go up so the other thing that you hear a lot is there's a lot of people that uh and they're not necessarily gold bugs, but they're saying, hey, gold needs to go up in value 
Um, and but, but yet something's not something's not working with gold. Well, one of the reasons is gold is going up in the weaker currencies. It's not going up in the dollar. Dollar starts to really crack, then I think you'll probably see some movement in gold. You know, you see studies where gold is outperforming the S and P. Well, that's fine. It's going down less. Remember, underperforming in a declining market doesn't mean you're not going to lose money. Just means it's going down less, so it has come off, and um, but not as much as the S and P five hundred. Yeah, I mean, frankly, I don't like to go down less either. <laughs> I don't want to go down. Less. I don't want to go down. I don't want. To, My I don't clients want don't seem to care about relative performance much. They kind of they think about absolute performance. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you know, we I all do. It's it. painful. You know, it's painful to yeah. lose money. So uh, the other narrative that you're hearing people say is that. Uh, on the bearish side, you know, we've seen Walmart and Macy's and Target, they're all uh, cutting back on orders ahead of the Christmas season, which is really unheard of, just doesn't happen very often, even though supplies are relatively constrained. And then you're seeing uh, Amazon, for example, has decided that they're going to stop some uh, building out some distribution projects. These are all things that like these, these managers appear to be seeing something negative in the future uh yet you're not hearing that out there and the, the, you know it, so that would that would be kind of reinforcing the the thesis that this downtrending will continue um i think so yes i think that i mean it's it's good that they are perceiving that there may be less purchasing because then they're not going to be left with so much extra inventory if in case that's the case yeah, so that yeah. so that could help actually in the longer run that they don't overdo it, and then we have bigger a bigger overhang problem. So they're right. being anticipatory. So that in a way, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. That that could be good actually, uh, longer it could term. Be. Um, so People the other thing, there's been a lot of a lot of money lost in this uh, in this decline, and uh, I would suggest that a lot of it may be speculative and leaves people without uh, something that they might otherwise have been able to spend. Exactly. So uh, I'm just throwing some things I've been hearing uh, fundamental analysts say, just want to hear your take on it. Housing market, 14 <laughs> year high, high housing market, mortgage rates up high. Uh, I, evidently the mortgage Payment has gone up by 57% since that bottom. And we had 9 million home buyers that were priced out of the market, according to the National Association of Real Estate People. A lot more uh, adjustable rate mortgages are going out there right now. So, are you seeing any signs of a bottoming housing, or do you see acceleration down in housing? The housing stocks, interestingly, were the ones in 2006 that were the first to put in these head and shoulder tops. And that was an early warning to us that something was changing. And you start to have a whole sector putting in place a major top, having been in an uptrend, and then you see the uptrend broken, and then you see the neckline of a head and shoulders top, which is this, right? <laughs> head and shoulders top. You see that broken in price. That's the point where somebody is willing to take less money to get out. That was a, a big warning for us, and we published it at the time. Now, I wrote a piece. I put up 
things that I write educationally or otherwise uh, go up on my website for anybody to pick up, lyadvisors.com. And I wrote something a while back because I was starting to see the same thing with the housing stocks uh, several months ago. And now they're talking about um, what you just said and making it difficult and the housing stocks are rolling over. But what you have to remember if you look at a monthly chart on, on Pulte or what else, Leonard or whatever I pulled up just to take a quick look at the time, is that the rallies that we've had have been rallies after the breakdown of several months back. You've had a breakdown from the tops in the housing stocks. And you've had a rally into the resistance of that breakdown. In other words, back up to the neckline, which is an opportunity, a last opportunity for people to sell into strength. Mm -hmm. And now they are rolling over from that rally. And I think that that may be another warning sign. This could be a more extended bear market. It doesn't have to hit its low you know, this year, although, I mean, it could extend another year or two because it's, it may be more slow moving. But we did have, we do have on our long-term work for the markets, the confluence of the 20-year cycle and the 40-year cycle, which were due to bottom together in 2022. The last times they bottomed together was 1982, 1942, wow. and then before that, just in the end of the last century. Uh, and each of those represented a major bottom that initiated a new bull market. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not the crisis that we had that caused interest rates to go to zero in this environment and the incredible liquidity that had to be flushed into the market um, and now needs to be taken back, which is what the Fed is doing, um, it's possible that this cycle bottom will extend forward simply because we've had an extraordinary financial event, so to speak. Maybe it doesn't bottom until 2023 or 2024. We don't know. But the tops in the housing and certainly the tops in the, in the um, technology, which were among the first to go down, now, in 2000, the technology was the last to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That, that's yeah. the thing that makes this difficult because market bottoms happen when people are worrying like we're talking about. They, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they tend to, you know, they tend to happen at that time. But yet where the many sectors are that are the leading sectors are, are, are technically their phase is still relatively, it appears, relatively early in the sell-off. Like you had mentioned, we had the head and shoulders or the topping pattern in the housing market, which is a leading sector, but yet we just went to roll reversal resistance and it sold off. That's more earlier stage. That's our mid-stage uh, type right. uh, action, which would indicate that the market has more to go down. So that's why I, I feel like, like some of the cycles say like, traditionally we should have a bottom, but then there's other things that are competing saying that is not true. Uh, uh, that that maybe that's still a different scenario because it feels different because of the more stagflationary environment. Um, the Fed is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they raise rates, they they crimp, crimp the economy down. If they lower if they lower and print more money like they have been doing, they they increase inflation more than it already is. So no matter it's it's a lose lose situation for the Fed right now. So uh, and and that to me is a little bit suspicious because. 
you know, when, the, you know, t traditionally I learned in economics classes that you may have to, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard. I didn't have economic <laughs> classes. I had childhood education classes. That's why you're such a good technician because you didn't get all that mess. Your brain was not muddled up with all that stuff. But two, two uh, declines in quarterly GDP growth is a recession historically, but somehow we're denying that now we went on to the third. I just kind of wonder what what are we doing here? You know, we're kind of redefining things. And uh, what would you say to that? Am I just being too um, critical? I no, I don't think. You, well, I don't know if you, if it's critical or it's not critical. I think that from a technician's perspective, it's all irrelevant. We want to see what happens in the indicators. And I will tell you that the monthly MACD gave us a perfectly good signal at the bottom in 2003 or whenever it was, when we turned up, it gave us a perfectly good signal after the 2008-2009. So I'm perfectly happy to stay neutral, let all the noise, the daily noise, um, pass me by, obviously I read, but um, and say, look, this market is not ready to embark on a new structural bull at this time. Do we get a rally into year end? It's possible. Sure. For the reasons we discussed, you know, the uh, seasonality of it, the go away in May and come back in October. But um, if you want to play some of the short-term momentum buys, fine. But recognize that we are not yet in a situation where the momentum is telling us it's a new bull market. Well, I, I love the fact that you're saying that that I don't have to listen to all of that uh, because you don't necessarily have to predict. You just you just follow what is the market telling me right now. And right. so what what would have to change in your indicators right now for you to say, yes, that is more likely to be a bottom at this point. What you're saying is there's some divergences. Maybe there's a tradable up move. But I'm not so sure it's going to be, you know, it's it's a bottom bottom. Well, if you if you really want to look at the uh, the momentum, the monthly momentum at least has to stop going down. It has to start to flatten. Okay, give us a give us a period of months where it starts to flatten. Then I'd like to see it start to turn up, and it's going to you know take some time between starting to turn up and actually giving the buy signal. Um, those are things that technically I would want to see happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, like, do you prefer to go bottom up or or top down, or or do you do both? Oh, I think you do both. You do both. I mean, I um, energy has certainly been something that, notwithstanding the pullbacks, it looks to us as though it may continue over over time. But the other the other materials has been poor industrials maybe short term is just starting to turn up um i do not think we're going to see technology come back to the leadership for for a period of time because those stocks have been very damaged not all of them not all of them but when you think of the 70 percent declines in so many of them um you're just not going to get uh you know the the bigger the top the bigger the drop the bigger the drop the longer the need for repair, and they have barely started to repair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love hearing these uh, uh, these phrases. 
they're uh, they they just they just tell you a lot about how to kind of think of things and kind of pull back a little bit. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I feel like a lot of people have gotten too too short term and too micro and not pulling back to those monthlies and not seeing the bigger picture. And, and uh, that's really important. So what, what to, they say, the markets, the markets are discounting mechanism. So we don't know exactly what it's discounting. I tend to question whether in this very high to high frequency technology environment, whether it's as much of a discounting mechanism as it used to be, because things are moving so fast, yeah. but definitely I want to see what the market's telling us. Mm, interesting. So, so you said you had a website. What, what is your website again? We just go in LY Advisors with an O, advisors.com, and you'll see the things that I've written this year. Not a lot of them, but some. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them dealt with MACD as an educational piece where we saw the Bitcoin collapsing uh, with a negative divergence and projected, are we seeing the same thing developing with gold? In fact, the negative divergences in gold have not voted well uh, for the price. We'll see how far that carries. But I think that these negative divergences are very helpful. And actually, the entire history of the MACD monthly buy and sell signal has been amazingly accurate. We did that study way back uh, when we were independent. I've got the whole thing printed out. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. I, MACD is so interesting because everybody knows about MACD. Uh, and some people will just discount MACD because everybody knows about it. But I will tell you, uh, we've done some quantitative analysis on MACD, and there is, uh, as an indicator, it is a very good indicator. It's a very, very good, good trend indicator, especially if you look at it in multiple time frames, going short days right. and going, and then you combine them together. Another thing that we right. found that really helps MACD to be more uh, robust of an indicator is adding volatility adjustment to it. So you you make an adjustment for volatility of the MACD, and then you normalize them, and then you can go across stocks, across markets, and get a quantitative number that's comparable. Like uh, uh, you could say that gold is minus twenty, and relative to the Japanese yen, it's also minus twenty. And so those are the types of things that we use here. But we're, and I think that's where technology can really help because we can crunch a lot more now than we used to be able to. But you have to be careful not to make that a crutch. I think people are making number crunching a crutch and turning and turning away from the the, the basics that actually meet that are meaningful. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, and I went through a period of time where I didn't. I was like MACD, oh whatever. Everybody knows about MACD, but I'm a believer now only because we've done the back tests and the work to see that's a good indicator. It is a good indicator. Yeah, yeah and and some of the things like uh, trend analysis, like higher highs, lower lows, relative strength, where you can't necessarily like you said, it's an art. It's not a perfect science. That has a lot of value. And I had I've I've had people criticize that before when I've talked to them, especially you know more fundamentally bent people. And I say, what's the difference between that, what I would call qualitative analysis of of the technical supply and demand for the securities themselves? What's the difference between that kind of qualitative analysis and qualitative fundamental analysis that says, oh, the management is good? or there's less competition in that. You know, those are judgment calls that you can't put a number on. And it's an art. It is. And so right. I love the fact that you 
still have the art in the technical world. I love that. And that you, I think that's a, that's a message that younger technicians need to still think about and learn and, and implement because we have gotten more in this quant world because computing power is so strong. Fascinating. Yeah. So, well, I think you have to be in it for a long time and I'm not quite sure how the art comes in, but it's a feeling. <laughs> it's a feeling that you get. I know what you mean. Uh, because, you know, I mean, every day I actually do punch numbers in for that reason. Uh, mm -hmm. When we're done with this, I'm going to punch the numbers in. I normally do it earlier, but I had other things I had to do this morning. But normally what I'll do is I'll go in and I'll punch in the trend indicator values for key markets that I follow. It's about 50 markets. And just that, and actually Ralph Acampora got me thinking that way. Um, I was, I, I spoke with him at a, a finance forum and I went after him, which was a mistake. Don't ever speak after Ralph oh. Acampora. I know he really lifts your spirits. Yeah, he should have went for I should have went first because you know I was like a letdown for me. But uh he he's he kind of got got me into that really. And since that time, I've been able to see the micro changes more clearly. If you're just looking at letting the computer do all the work, you may not notice it. But if you mm -hmm. entered in the number 19 today, then yesterday you entered in 1871. It's a lower number and you caught it even though it was a small number. So you tend to see things faster and you tend to get a rhythm. Well, Louise, is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? I just did a piece and which could be very helpful in a bear market rally, uh, that all advances are not equal. In other words, you have the advances of stocks that are already going up and go higher. That's rising. You have the breakdowns through support. I mean, we could use the housing stocks that we just talked about, and they just had a rally into resistance. So they were rallying at the same time that the new stocks that were going to new highs were rallying. And then you're getting rallies off the lows for some of these down 70% stocks um, hmm. that are also rallying. So it creates a market rally but all those rallies are not equal. You certainly don't want to stay necessarily in the stocks that are down 70% having just their first rally because they have a lot of repair ahead of them. Mm. Uh, and the ones that have rallied into their first resistance have broken the support, which then becomes resistance um, because they may go lower. Um, and I think it's important to know where you are in the trend, in the stock, within a rally. Wow, that that is good <laughs> stuff right there. No, no, because that when it comes to actual rubber meets the road managing money, that's the difference between where you're going to focus your attention. There is a list. Right. Uh, we follow a list. Uh, I call it a trend filter, where stocks that are more into fresh highs, stocks that are more basing high, at higher levels. And that list has grown a little bit lately, finally, a little bit, but still right. historically low. Uh, but most of the other stuff, those big moves that you have off the bottom, and sometimes they suck people in saying, oh, that's the bottom. You get this feeling like I got to get in. Uh, and, then, and then it rolls over on you. That's kind of been the sequence, right? But you're right. There's very few stocks that are at that fresh, new high bases type scenario. There's some that have already right. run 
And the other thing that we could comment on, because it drives me a little bit crazy, is when they talk about, oh, it's value over growth. Okay, it's value over growth. And you have value investors who go into the stocks that they perceive as value, and they sit there for three years. I mean, value stocks that are going to do well are the value stocks that are going to eventually have growth, right? They're going to sit there as long as they're value stocks. So my feeling is that you have a list of value stocks, which you monitor, but don't put your money in them to just sit there until you see the technical reason to buy it, until you see that breakdown, a breakout that says somebody out there will pay is willing to pay more for this stock now wasn't willing to do it three years ago or two years ago but they're willing to do it now and that indication could tell you that those stocks are on their way to being growth that's all a value stock is it's something that's going to sit there until there's a potential for it to grow <laughs> I, I i i love that do you know brian shannon brian, know the name. brian you know shannon's the name. a really great technician he, he says only price pays, like ulti- right. only price pays. And uh, and I always say that uh, the market, uh, you, you never make money unless the marketplace recognizes your opportunity because, you know, you might perceive an opportunity. And I have friends, you know, right. that are staunch value people and they've done well over the years, but they take tremendous amounts of pain. It'd be interesting to see how that, how they're doing relative to the other stocks. Yeah, and right now probably not so not so good. But I love that idea. Have your buy list of value potentials based on you know potential, and then when you get those breakouts, when the selling interest stops and and it's basing and starts moving higher, and your RS line starts pulling up, then go ahead and buy it, and then use your risk management. Oh, that's something I should ask you. How do you use uh, technical analysis from a? I mean, I know you've kind of insinuated it, but how do you use? Uh, technical analysis from a standpoint of risk management. Do you are you a believer in stops, or do you have like mental areas that you say that well I'll be wrong at this level, and then you get out. How how do you in your own trading well, and investing deal with that? I don't do a lot of trading and investing, but um, I do think that if you recognize that an uptrend is a higher low followed by a higher high. If your prior low is violated, something's not quite right. Um, So risk management takes you back to the indicators again. What are they telling you? Are they telling you that there's a consolidation here? Are they telling you from a weekly perspective you may be getting a corrective trend? It's a question of which way the moving averages are going. Have you violated the moving averages? There are a lot of things that you can look at for risk management. I know Investors Business Daily tells you to sell 7% down, but something could go 7% down and turn right around and go up again. So it's a question of your personal ability to accept risk, number one. And... Um, I think that that's a very personal thing. Obviously, you don't want to take a huge loss. And as long as you're in the, in the you know, you've got a profit, it doesn't hurt to take some of it off the table if something is going amiss, but that the uptrend seems to be still in place. Mm. I think that you, you need to juggle the 
technical factors. And one's risk tolerance, I guess, is the thing. I don't have a big risk tolerance. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. Did you know Bernadette Murphy? Oh, yes. I was so fond of her. We used to go to the museums together on weekends. <laughs> I, I never got a chance to meet her. Oh, she was a delight. She was a lovely, lovely human being. Um, I also... Uh, um, corrected the CMT exams with her years back in the early days of the CMT. And there's a really funny story because I was a really strict marker. And there would be Bernadette and me and John Murphy. And John Murphy was a very easy marker. And Bernadette told me years later that she had the worst time when the two of us were on the committee to, to correct because she had to go home and go over them all herself and ease up on my grades and tighten up on John's. <laughs> she had to do the whole thing herself. Oh my gosh, was that back when, when you had to write the essays? Uh, no. no, that was when it was strictly knowing your stuff. Well, thanks a lot, yeah. Louise. I just, it's been a pleasure talking to you and learning more Louis, about your... thank you so much for pursuing this. It was, it was a delight to chat with you. I'll probably think of all the things I would have said, would have wanted to say after we close out. Oh, we'll have to okay. talk about that. We can later. do it again at the 50th anniversary. Good talking to you, Louise. And uh, I'm going to pull out my so monthly much. charts and my relative strength charts and look at divergence. Great. Good. Thank you so much. Take care. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.